Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow, Coretta Scott King, once told the Unitarian minister Rosemary McNatt, Oh, I went to Unitarian churches for years, even before I met Martin, explaining that she'd been since college a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was popular among Unitarian Universalists. And Martin and I went to Unitarian churches when we were in Boston. We gave a lot of thought to becoming Unitarian at one time, but Martin and I realized we could never build a mass movement of black people if we were Unitarian. Let that sink in a minute. Imagine if Martin Luther King and Coretta had worked within our Unitarian sphere to create the civil rights revolution of the 60s. What would that have looked like? Would his work have changed? How would our association be different? Or Hope Church? At the time, and still today, his family and the movement's decision to work primarily within the black church, the black church structure still feels like a rejection. How could this Boston University-educated preacher and activist not see the intelligence and openness (laughs) Unitarians would bring to the causes of voting rights? How could he miss our devotion and history to activism? We've worked in slavery to give women equal rights. We have more than three centuries of community ministries. I have one idea why King didn't become Unitarian. And to put it bluntly, Unitarian and Universalist churches were not, were and are primarily white. King couldn't build a viable coalition from the power brokers of the day who were white. His movement had to come from the bottom up. It had to be primarily black. And it was driven by the constant stories of discrimination and disenfranchisement. And those stories could only be told by those who experienced So I'm not preaching today about integrating our Unitarian Universalist Association. I'm not preaching about seeking racial diversity at Hope Church. And I'm not preaching to stir up white guilt or brown guilt or black guilt. I am preaching about what drives sustained social justice change. I am preaching about taking ourselves seriously. I'm preaching about telling our own stories. I'm preaching about listening to each other. I'm preaching about the best place and really the only place out of which we can work is our own experience and our own anger and our own disappointments. I'm preaching about starting with who and where we are now, today. 
So returning to King as our model, he became the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So in 1957, King with others built not just an organization, but most importantly, a national, international network of relationships. The conference is constructed on partnerships with a shared mission. It consists of connections grounded in a common faith and common anger. Rather than seek individual members, it coordinates with local churches and organizations. If you were here at 10 o'clock, you kind of know where I'm headed. Creating momentum for change in the South and ultimately across the whole country requires locating and training local leadership. So initially, the conference that King started is named the Negro Leaders Conference on Nonviolent Integration. Then, the Southern Negro Leaders Conference, and finally, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But the word leader or leadership is in each iteration of their title because the conference opens citizenship schools and conducts leadership training. One of its pamphlets explains, the lifeblood of conference movements is in the masses of people who are involved, members of the conference and its local affiliates and chapters. King knows that leaders must arise from within the communities most harmed by the unjust and despicable racist practices of the day. So let me recap. Based on the collective story of thousands of people harmed by policies of being cut out of the democratic process, cut out of fair transportation, cut out of decent wages and equal treatment, King and others create a network of relationships. It works across racial lines, religious divides, and geographic boundaries because they're welding together local institutions. It's built from the bottom up. It lifts people up with training and education. And it carries two moral imperatives, nonviolent activism and justice. I'm so excited because Hope Church is working on a similar life-changing community organizing work. And as you know, a group of dedicated Hope members have been spending the last couple of years doing the exact same thing, learning, listening, taking training. And this core team is going to walk many of us through as many possible small discussion meetings. This is how we begin by listening to each other. We call them house meetings to capture the intimacy of them. And if all goes as planned, each one of us can attend one of the 20 meetings they've scheduled. House meetings, they'll be small. They'll be here at church, but they'll range from five to 10 people, and they'll only last an hour. But you're gonna have a chance to get to know different people in the church. You know, churches, we think we know people until we sit down and really talk to them. And you will certainly get to know them in a different way. 
unlike King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, these house meetings at Hope aren't focused on a single issue. Each decade, each community has its unique set of entangled problems. And the way to uncover what's most impacting Tulsa is to hear everyone's stories. We will follow people's needs. And stories aren't the sole focus. We'll be looking for passion in each personal story, an anger that cuts through fear from the bottom up through a network of growing relationships. The stories we hear at Hope along with dozen others at other congregations and organizations, will set the direction. And just like the Southern Conference, the name of the organization has to evolve. The current holding name is Tulsa Sponsoring Committee. But in the next year, member institutions, including Hope, will pick a name that reflects who we are and what's going on in Tulsa. What issues arise that are unique to us and maybe not unique at all that every American city is dealing with. And just like the Southern Conference, education, training, and developing leadership is central to the process. And just like the conference, the work helps all of us to become more culturally competent. It puts us in direct, honest relationship with people who are a different color, have different experiences, have different religious beliefs, come from a different economic background, and have a different worldview. And it puts them in relationship with us. As we work increasingly across ideological and cultural variations, it will diversify the character and demographics of Hope Church. So despite King's decision not to join the Unitarians as his church home, he never loses contact with us. He stays connected. He knows how to disagree with someone or some group while still seeing their full humanity. Regardless of differences, he can still work with us. And this is a critical moral lesson of King's work and the Tulsa Sponsoring Committee. It is. It is a vital lesson missing in much of our national politics, religions, and social conversations. There will come a time that we are on the same side of an issue or a problem as someone we've opposed earlier. And because we haven't severed ties or burned bridges, we'll still be able to work together. For example, because King knows many Unitarians from his time in Boston, he still has relationships and knows we're trustworthy. And this trust goes both ways. The Unitarians know King's character and commitment. So when King puts out a national call in 1965 to clergy for support 
of the voting rights in Selma, Alabama, Unitarians show up willingly. We are essential to that work. And then, regrettably, the white Unitarian minister, the only kind we have at the time, Reverend James Reeb becomes a martyr to the civil rights cause when he dies in Selma after being attacked by a group of white supremacists. And it's King who delivers James Reeb's eulogy, a witness to the truth. And King asks two vital questions. Who killed James Reeb? The answer is simple and rather limited when we think of the who. He was murdered by a few sick, demented, and misguided men who have the strange notion that you express dissent through murder. There is another haunting, poignant, desperate question we are forced to ask this afternoon. It is the question, what killed James Reeb? When we move from the who to the what, the blame is wide and the responsibility grows. James Reeb was murdered by the indifference of every minister of the gospel who has remained silent behind the safe security of stained glass windows. He was murdered by the irrelevancy of a church that will stand amid social evil and serve as a taillight rather than a headlight, an echo rather than a voice. He was murdered by the irresponsibility of every, per- every politician who has moved down the path of demagoguery who has fed his constituents the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. He was murdered by the brutality of every sheriff and law enforcement agent who practices lawlessness in the name of the law. He was murdered by the timidity of a federal government that can spend millions a day to keep troops in South Vietnam, yet cannot protect the lives of its own citizens seeking constitutional rights. Yes, he was even murdered by the cowardice of every Negro who tacitly accepts the evil system of segregation, who stands on the sidelines in the midst of a mighty struggle for justice. That's King addressing the congregation at the eulogy in Selma's African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's an interfaith crowd of mixed gender and race. And he is speaking about every congregation, every religious institution too busy preaching, supping, visiting, to earnestly and effectively engage the grotesque injustices of the day. Did you hear him say James Reeb was murdered by the irrelevancy of a church that will stand amid social evil and serve as a tail light rather than a headlight, an echo rather than a voice? Now, almost 55 years later, to the day, 
that he delivered that eulogy? Does his description of church fit us in any way at hope? Are we a taillight on the the caravan of fast-moving social evils? King is not just talking about race relations and and the disenfranchised. He outlines a whole knot of interrelated injustices, hatred, racism, brutality, lawlessness, war, government timidity, cowardice, and unrealized rights. That list speaks loudly to me today. It is part of the caravan of social evil still racing along today. The vehicles may have morphed and changed over the decades, but racist hatred is spoken anew and loudly these days. Our government's timidity is on dreadful display in our state's underfunding of basic critical services. To use religious language, it is a sin for leadership to starve education in Oklahoma. It is a sin. But we're a small church. How can we possibly address all that is wrong? We'll burn ourselves out, which has happened here and certainly can again? How can we even agree on the most pressing issues of the day? How do we sort through the what? How do we effectively partner with other institutions on the what? Once again, I turn to King. He was invited to give the where lecture, a prestigious Unitarian Universalist annual lecture. It's our 95-year-old version of a TED Talk. This year, Krista Tippett will be the uh, Ware Lecturer in Ohio, if you're a fan of her On Being radio program. But back in 1966, it was Dr. King. And the title of that talk was, and remains, a needed lecture to us and our association. Don't sleep through the revolution. What he says then applies us to us today. One thing that the church must do to remain awake throughout this revolution is to move out into the arena of social action. So our collaboration with other institutions through the Tulsa Sponsoring Committee will move us further out into this arena of social action. We'll start local. We'll start with ourselves. We'll start by asking what? What is killing the spirits of our families? What struggles shape your daily life? These conversations don't have to be confessional, but they do have to be real. And we're going to have to interrupt our tendencies to talk in generalizations about pressing issues that aren't personal. Unless icebergs are melting in your backyard, global warming, as troublesome as it is, may not 
be the story told in house meetings, I don't know. But unless you have a kidnapped child in your family, child trafficking may not be the subject at hand. But you may have a child whose classroom size has doubled or attends a school forced to cut programs. And this family struggle to get the best education possible for your children may become an often told story. It may. But just as King kept his followers focused, the house meetings will do the same for us. We will find unexpected common issues. More importantly, we will interrupt an arrogance that plagues our liberal religious tradition. We who have power can so easily defect those inquiries. Fine. Pops out of our mouths when asked, how are you? What's going on? Not much. The usual? We're dismissive of others when we mask our own stories. We have to first acknowledge and understand our own situations or else we're patronizing. Truly, we cannot be fully trusted. If we don't talk about ourselves, we are acting as saviors, not equals. So participating in these house meetings will change us in ways I can't anticipate. We will listen deeply. We will talk about ourselves, not offer advice or fix things, something we're good at, I'm good at, and we'll cement new relationships. Sharing honestly does this. Each one of us who attends a house meeting will become more awake. We will have a much clearer idea about the what. The what within Hope Church. The what in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we'll be moving beyond charity alone into that arena of social action. We'll be learning and building power together, and we will not be a tail light. I cannot wait. May it be so.